Matthew chapter 14, and we'll begin reading in verse 22. And straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him unto the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid we come unto thee on the water. And he said, the word we're going to look into this evening, come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried, saying, Lord, save me. He immediately stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were coming to the ship, the wind ceased. Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. Before you close your Bible, before you tune me out, I understand you know the story of Peter walking on water. You know the story of Peter taking his eye off of Jesus Christ and losing focus because of the distractions and him falling. But I really, really want to look into this passage of Scripture and see what else we can learn for it. Maybe dig a little bit deeper into what Jesus was challenging him to do and how that can pertain to you. A practical side of it when Jesus says, come. And what is he challenging you to come out of, to come into, to get involved with? One of the many houses that I grew up in was located in Blairsville, Pennsylvania on Old Pizza Barn Road. And yes, on this road there was an actual pizza barn. It was, looked like a barn and they served great pizza. And the house that I grew up in was unique for a few reasons. One, we had this amazing basement. It wasn't finished, but I loved it. My dad put some carpet down there, and that was like our kids' play zone, and there was toys everywhere, and we could just make it a mess, and we didn't really have to clean it up that much. That basement was amazing. Also, we had this backyard, and the backyard was huge, and there was one tree right at the very end of the backyard, and I would climb that tree often and hang out up there, get stuck sometimes, but I enjoyed that tree. We had blackberry bushes as well along the fish fence line. And I would eat blackberries in the summer until I turned into a blackberry. I loved it. But one of the most unique things about the house is the simple fact that it had a flat roof. Has anyone ever lived in a house with a flat roof? A few of you. It's, it's quiet in here. You guys doing good? Okay, good, good. A flat roof. So the house that we had, it was a ranch-style home. It was red brick, and it had a white flat roof. The flat roof I used to my advantage a lot of times when my sister would annoy me, my older sister. I would often take her dolls, and I would throw them on the roof. Yeah, bad example. I shouldn't have done that. I had a little brother, and sometimes I would want to get back at him, and I would throw his toys on the roof. Sometimes my friends would come over, and we were playing football, and we would see who could throw it over the roof, and it would get stuck on the roof. That roof was my friend, that roof was my enemy, that roof taught me a valuable lesson. One day my dad said, Michael, it's time to clean off the roof. And I wasn't sure all that that meant, but what that meant was that my adopted father, who is six foot tall, would pick me up and put me on the roof. And I would grab a hold of the roof and pull myself up. And so this stage is perfect. They did a great job on it, but this is going to be my 
roof this evening. And so I would get on the roof, and when I got up here, my knees were a little shaky. I was a little nervous, kind of like I am right now. Everyone's staring at me. And I was a little nervous, and I would get up here, and my dad would simply say, just go up there and find the toys and find what is up there and throw it down. So I would begin to look on the roof, and once I got up here and got comfortable, it was pretty cool. I would find stuff that I forgot existed, like my favorite Batman toy. And I still love Batman today. My son has tons of these. So I would find these on the roof and I would simply just throw them down. It's, it's a simple job. That's what I would do. I would find a football that was up here. And uh, does anyone think they can catch it? No. The teenagers are like, yeah. No, I'm not Pastor Dave. I'm not going to do that. I would find my sister's dolls. Elsa wasn't around then, but her dolls would be up here because I would find those because I threw them up here. I would find all kinds of things, dead animals, and I'm walking around and I'm just enjoying life up on the roof. I would find money sometimes. No, I never found money, but here's $20. Who lost this? Anyone? Anyone? Teenagers are like, "Ah, I'm going to keep that. Here's another dollar bill. So I would find things on the roof. It was a simple job. I enjoyed walking up here. I enjoyed doing the job for my dad until he said, come, it's time to get down. Because what that meant was my dad wasn't tall enough just to reach up and him grab me. He wanted me to jump. He wanted me to take a step of faith. He wanted me to show trust in him and jump to him. I would say, Dad, no, go get the ladder. I was probably around 9 or 10 years old. And, Dad, go get the ladder. It's in the garage. Just go get it. No, Michael, I want you to jump. I want you to trust me. So I don't even know if this foam is safe, but if I mess it up, then don't tell Dave. So I would just sit on the edge of the roof like this. I wasn't much taller than this at the time either. And I would just sit here and dangle my little feet. And I would just wait for dad to get the ladder. But every time he would just say, come on, Michael, just trust me, jump. And I didn't want to. I didn't trust him. It got so bad that he would go inside and he would come back out. It seemed like hours. I don't know if it was hours. I'd have to ask him. But it seems like the sun would go down. But my dad simply wanted me to jump. You see, in our lives as Christians, the easy part is accepting Christ as our Savior. The hard part is living by faith. The easy part as Christians is enjoying the blessings as they come, but praising God through the storms is hard. The easy part is enjoying the mountaintop, enjoying the view, but when we're in the valley and we just don't see a way out, still understanding that God is good. While I was on the rooftop and I enjoyed the the wind, I enjoyed the view that I had, I enjoyed just doing a job and finding stuff, that was fun. But when it came down to it and I had to exhibit faith, it was much, much harder. In our passage of Scripture, the disciples had a mountaintop experience. Jesus was ministering to a great multitude in Matthew chapter 14, and you recall the story. A great multitude had followed him. He is teaching. He is preaching. And they began to grow weary. They began to grow tired and hungry. The disciples noticed that and told Jesus, as if Jesus didn't know. And they said, I think it's time we send them away to their village so they can go get food. Jesus Christ, however, said, no, let's see what we have here. What can we use? Of course, there was a young man with five loaves and two fishes. And he was able to use that to feed the multitude. That is in the same chapter that we're in today. 
After they are fed, they collect all the leftovers. And I'm sure the disciples are pretty excited about all the leftovers that they have. I mean, 12 baskets full that they're able to take into the ship with them. And they began to depart. He sends the multitude away. The disciples enter into their ship. And Jesus Christ goes up into the mountain to pray. The disciples, they launch into the sea. And they order to get to the other side in order to ministry. As I was studying this out, I read this little joke. It wasn't even that funny. But they said, why did the disciples go to the other side? You know, like, why did the chicken cross the road? To minister to the other people. It's, it's not even that funny. But I read it, so thank you for laughing, Robin. I appreciate you. But we now pick up in verse 24. And the disciples find themselves out in the middle of the sea. The winds are boisterous. The waves are hitting up against the ship. A storm is coming. You see, the disciples found themselves, number one, in a concerning situation. A concerning situation. Verse 25 tells us that it was the fourth watch of the night Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. Fourth watch means in Roman time standards that it was between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So one would assume that the sun had not risen, that it was still dark out, and they see a figure walking their way. Could you imagine you're out at sea? How many of you like open water? How many of you dislike open water? Yeah, I would love to go on a cruise, but my wife's like, I don't want to go on, out on open water, so we'll see if we can get her out there sometime. But imagine you're out on open water and out in the middle of the sea, and you're just trying to get to the other side to proclaim the name of Jesus, to watch him perform more miracles. And as you're doing that, the waves begin to hit against the ship. The winds are boisterous. There's a storm coming, and you look out, and you see a figure. It appears to be a man walking on the sea. The disciples responded probably the same way we all would. They were consumed with fear. Verse 26 says, And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It's a spirit. And they cried out for fear. They were terrified. They cried out that it was a spirit coming their way. When they were, what they were facing was something that was unexpected, something that wasn't planned, something that they had no idea that was coming. And oftentimes we respond the same way when we have circumstances come our way. You may chuckle and say, why would they think it's a spirit? What's so scary about that? Jesus Christ was with them. They're Jesus Christ followers, but so are we Jesus Christ followers. And yet when unexpected things come our way, oftentimes We're just consumed with fear. We grow anxious. We grow nervous. Circumstances that are out of our control, circumstances that are unexpected, and circumstances that we just aren't ready for. We freak out over a bill. We panic over a job situation. We lose all hope when the doctor gives a diagnosis. We just weren't ready. We're often consumed with fear when we are faced with the unexpected. But the disciples, for one, they didn't have the Holy Spirit Remember, Jesus Christ had not sent the Comforter at this time, but we do. The disciples didn't have 2 Timothy 1.7. If you could turn there, 2 Timothy 1.7 is a great reminder of how we should handle fear. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. You see, the emotion of fear is not of God. It is an emotion that Satan uses to get us to worry, to fret, and ultimately to lose our focus on Jesus Christ. It is what Satan 
uses. We often fear the unexpected, but God always knows the unexpected. You fear it when it comes to you, but understand God knows exactly what you're going through. God knew that you were going to go through it. God has prepared you to go through it. God has given you the Holy Spirit to help you go through it, the church body to help you go through it. God is not surprised by the unexpected as we are. He knows exactly what you're going through. The disciples were consumed by fear, but they were comforted. They were consoled by Christ. Just when the disciples were so consumed by their fears, Jesus Christ, as he always does, he comforted them. Jesus Christ announced his presence in verse 27, but straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I, be not afraid. The disciples were wise enough to silence everything else around them and focus on Christ. They didn't let the wind, they didn't let the waves, they didn't let the storm distract them. They listened to Jesus. Oftentimes in our lives, we let the world around us drown out Jesus Christ. We let the negativity, we let everything that we're involved in, the busyness that we have to drown out Christ. Jesus announced his presence and the disciples recognized that he was in their midst. When was the last time that you recognized that Jesus Christ is in your midst? Not only in your midst, but as a Christian, as someone who's accepted Christ as your personal Savior, you have a one-on-one relationship with Jesus Christ. You have access to the throne and you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. When was the last time that you recognized that fact? When, when fear consumed you, when was the last time that you understood that the Holy Spirit is with you, leading you, guiding you, comforting you? They were consoled by Christ. I love 2 Corinthians verse 1, or I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, because this explains that Jesus Christ, that God is the ultimate comforter. 2 Corinthians Chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Verse 4, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. God is not a God of fear. God is a God of comfort. And no matter what you're going through, whatever unexpected thing, whatever circumstance you're facing, God knows. God is with you. God comforts you. The disciples found themselves in a concerning situation. But then Peter found himself in a challenging position. Verse 20 and 29, or 28 and 29 is where we'll be in a moment. But this is where we get into the saying that we're studying tonight. The simple word, come. A challenging position. Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou... Bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Peter, the former fisherman who was changed into a fisher of man. Peter, the disciple of Jesus. Peter, the disciple who cut off the Roman centurion's ear. Peter, the disciple who denied Jesus Christ three times. Peter, the man, the disciple who walked on water only to lose focus and to sink. Peter is a man that oftentimes we ridicule. Oftentimes we criticize, oftentimes he's the joke of the disciples when we look at them. However, Peter was a man of faith. Peter understood that when Jesus Christ challenged him to come out, that through his faith he could see a miracle 
take place. Peter did something no other disciple had the faith to even attempt. I'm sure that as Peter said, Jesus, if it's really you, call me out onto the sea. Let me walk with you. And Jesus Christ responded and said, come. I'm sure the other disciples that were in there, in the boat, they were probably like, Jesus said, what? Really? Peter? Peter gets to walk on water? Really, Jesus Christ, are you sure that Peter's the right one that you want to do this? Jesus, really? Peter was prompted by Christ. For Peter, when Jesus said, come, it was to walk on water. He was prompted, he was encouraged, he was challenged. Jesus called him out. In our lives, you're probably not going to feel a Holy Spirit's tug to walk on water. Has anyone ever felt that? If you have, you probably didn't succeed. And if you did, please talk to me after service. I want to know the secret to it. You're probably not going to be challenged by God to walk out on water. But in everyone's life in here, Jesus Christ is calling you to something. The Holy Spirit is challenging you to do something. God is pushing you to do something. What is the come in your life? What is Jesus Christ saying to you? Come, be part of this. Sign up for an Easter drama. Join a life group. Invite a friend to church. Be a light at work. Forget the depression. Forget the bitterness. Forgive. What is Jesus Christ calling you out to do? For Peter, it was to walk on water. For us, it may be completely different. Maybe Christ is prompting you to forgive, to let go of bitterness, to stop measuring your self-worth by the world's standards, to stop trying to keep up with a neighbor in society, but to simply follow Christ with your life. Jesus prompted Peter to come to him. In each of our lives, we have an area that we are prompted to go towards Christ. Are you putting into action what Christ is asking? What Christ is challenging to you to do, are you putting it into action? I think about my own life, and there's obvious things that God has called me to do. One is, I firmly believe, and there's a calling on my life to work with teenagers, and I, I love doing that, although they tested my patience this morning, which is fine. We had some new teenagers in there, and that's great. I love having that. That is a calling on my life. I know that Christ has called me to do that. As Christians, we're all called to share the gospel, to be part of the Great Commission. But more recently in my life, a personal struggle that I had, and I'm going to be pretty transparent with you and just share with you something that God had called me to do, to step out on water by faith, but I didn't want to. And I'm glad that I did, and it's opened up a door of opportunity. Um, For those who maybe have heard some of my testimony Uh, I have never known my biological father. I was adopted by my dad. That's where I got the great last name Whitaker. And you look at me like, he doesn't look like a Whitaker. Yeah, probably not. My last name was Compeezy prior. And I was adopted by him. But the history would be that there were some issues with my mom and my biological father, some abuse and things like that. And we don't have to get all into it, but a lot of negative, a lot of negative. And uh, they were both very young at the time when they had me, teenagers in high school, and my mindset and my heart towards that man was bitterness, was hatred. It was, I never want to see that person, and if I do, I wouldn't want anything to do with them. And I really struggled with it. Really, really struggled. I remember taking a class in college, and it was called 
Counseling Youth Conflicts, I believe was the name of the class, and one of our professors, he taught him forgiveness one day, and I remember going to him and just kind of telling him some of my story and told him that I don't think I could ever forgive him. Um, just the sense of abandonment that I had, the, the pain that he had caused my mother, you understand the situation that I would be in. And he asked me the question and said, if God had set it up to where you could witness to him, would you be able to? And that was very convicting. And I looked at him and I said, honestly, I couldn't. And it's something that I dealt with through college, and there was always curiosity that side of the family, obviously. And uh, I met my wife, who's Italian, and that side of the family is Italian, so that kind of sparked more curiosity. And I remember when we were in Alabama last year, and I was teaching a series with the teenagers about Joseph in the Old Testament, and how what was meant for evil in his life, God had turned it into something good, and how Joseph was able to forgive his brothers that had hurt him. And I always, always, always felt Jesus calling and saying, come to forgiveness, forgive, you'll be a happier person, let the bitterness go. And it was hard for me to do, and my wife, you know, she did a great job preaching at me, and she simply just said, when are you going to live what you're preaching? When are you going to practice it? And that's what I, in a way, needed to hear, and it's not that I made a deal with God, but I made a commitment to God. God, if you bring us anywhere close to where he is, I will reach out to him. And wouldn't you know that about three months later, he moved us to Columbus, Ohio, and he lives in Ohio. So God kind of kept his end of the commitment, and now it was my turn. I was able to send him a message through Facebook, and we contacted that way. And uh, unfortunately, he's paralyzed from the waist down from, or I'm sorry, from the neck down from a motorcycle accident. And I'll never really get to see him in the normal state and healthy living his quality of life is low at this point but he did accept Jesus Christ as his savior last Easter because of the tragedy he knew that he needed help and I have been able to forgive him in my heart and tomorrow I have the opportunity to actually go see him in the hospital and pray with him and try to minister to him and talk to him That's something that I never thought I would ever, ever, ever experience. Ever. I'm sure Peter thought the same thing about walking on water, that he would never, ever experience that. But Jesus said, come, and he came. Jesus said, forgive, and I forgave. And I'm not the perfect example of it, but I know in my life, Jesus Christ called me to do that, and I did it. And I was so excited to hear that he had accepted Christ as his Savior, I was so excited to hear that he wants to grow closer in his walk with God and that I may actually be a part of that. I thought I would find a situation totally different, but I found a brother in Christ. And I'm asking you that you would pray for me tomorrow. This week has been crazy just even trying to prepare for this, and I didn't even know if I was going to tie this in, but I feel like this is where God would have it go. Jesus Christ is calling you to do something, but you have to step out of the boat. Peter could have stayed there. Jesus Christ said, come. He could have stayed there, and he would have been fine. But he wouldn't have experienced the miracle. He wouldn't have been able to tell others what Jesus had done for him. Jesus Christ said, come. What is he he prompting you to do? Not only did Jesus Christ prompt him, but Peter was propelled by faith. Peter was prompted by Christ in his decision was ultimately propelled by faith. It took a lot of faith to step out of that boat. The storm is going, is brewing, there's wind, there's waves. 
and he went by faith. Hebrews 11.6 says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. So the disciples were in a concerning situation, which led to a challenging position, and it ends with a candid conclusion, a candid conclusion. Have you ever had your phone out, and you were able just to grab the right picture at the right time, or you had a video camera, and you videoed something just at the right moment? Being a parent, you understand what kids do, what they say, um, probably what they get from you, and you don't want them to repeat it, but you happen to catch it on camera. I think of something like America's Funniest Home Videos and how it was so popular for so many years because it was just candid. It was just raw. It wasn't something that was practiced. It wasn't staged. It just happened. And if cameras were around in Jesus' day, I'm sure the other disciples would have just been there videoing, just waiting for Peter to see what he would do, to see if he could take a step on water, to see if he would fall. It was a candid conclusion. It was ruined by distractions, though. Verse 30 says, But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. You see, Peter took his eyes off the Lord. He began to look around. He noticed the wind. He noticed the waves. He saw everything that was around him, and he lost focus. You see, this is Satan's plan, and he is a master at executing it. He understands that those that are gathered in this room, he's probably not going to get a lot of you to be addicted to drugs. He understands that a life of immorality may not be the way that he tempts you. He knows that he may not even get you into a bar this next weekend. He knows that if he can distract you, then he can cause you to lose focus on Christ. He knows that if he can get you busy, then he can cause your priorities to get out of whack. Satan knows how to attack. If he can distract you, then he can change your focus. If he can change your focus, then he can tempt you and he can watch you fall. In order to stand, Peter had to stay focused and he had to limit distractions. What is distracting you in your life? What's a focal point? What are you fixated on? What are you always thinking about and dwelling on? Recently, my wife got a job and we began to look for a second car. As we began to look, uh, it turned into, I'm just going to spend a little bit of money and get something that good, that's good on gas to, I'm going to get a hobby vehicle. I didn't get a vehicle yet, but I began to look and I fell in love with these old Jeeps. Has anyone ever had a Jeep Cherokee? No, a couple of you, there you go. This was a 1998 Jeep Cherokee and for some reason I fell in love with these Jeeps. I can't tell you why, I just like the body style, it's a four-wheel drive. This one has a three-inch lift kit in it so I can get into it without having to stand on a stool or anything, but I loved this vehicle. And it began to be a focal point for me. And it was crazy. Everywhere I went before, I never saw Jeeps. At least if I did, I didn't pay attention to it. But now everywhere I go in Canal and Columbus and Pickerington, Reynoldsburg, I see Jeeps everywhere because this is my focus. Because this is something that I'm thinking about. This is something I'm fixated on. Now, imagine if I was focused on Jesus Christ. Imagine if I was fixated on Jesus. I would literally see Jesus Christ in everything. I would see him in relationships. I would see him in nature. I would see him in every day-to-day life. We must stay focused on Jesus and limit distractions. He was ruined by distractions, but thankfully he was rescued by Christ. Verse 31, and immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand. And caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? 
Have you ever been challenged or dared to do something and it backfired on you? I mean, someone did a whole like double dog dare when you were a teenager or something and it totally backfired. I remember in college, I was hanging out with our crew of people and we were in a little car driving down the highway and it was a red light and one of the guys said, hey, Wit, why don't you do a Chinese fire drill? Anyone ever do a Chinese fire drill? Yeah. So I jump out of the vehicle. I began to do my lap around the vehicle. And when I go to the door, it's locked. And they drive off. It's a bad feeling. It was a pretty busy highway. And I began to sprint after the car. And thankfully, one of my friends rolled down the window. And I jumped through the window, safe and sound. That plan backfired. The challenge backfired. The challenges that Jesus Christ gives us when he says come will never backfire. Because Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you. There may be times that you lose focus. There may may be times that you're distracted. There may be times that you fall. But Jesus Christ is always there to pick you back up. I love the second word of verse 31. The word is immediately. Immediately. As soon as Peter cried out for help. Jesus Christ didn't have to think about it. He didn't have to ponder it. He didn't say, well, thou of little faith, you can sit there and drown for a minute and then I'll save you. He didn't say that. Immediately, he pulled him up and helped him. Jesus stepped right in and helped him refocus. It may be through a message. It may be through scripture that you read. It may be through the Holy Spirit convicting you. But there may be areas that you need to refocus. Peter did the right thing in verse 30 when he cried, Lord, save me. You see, asking God for help isn't weakness, it's wisdom. Peter could have tried to swim back to the boat. We're not sure if he took just a couple steps or if he walked a ways out, but he could have tried to swim back by himself, but he didn't. He wisely said, Lord, save me. This wasn't weak of him, this was wise of him to trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus has the same love for him as he has for us. And anytime we fall, anytime we grow distracted, Jesus Christ is there to lift us up. You see, we may get discouraged and distracted, but through Christ, we will never, ever be defeated. Distractions will come, discouragement will come, but you will never, ever be defeated. Jesus Christ said, come. What does that mean for you? For Peter, walk on water. For you, forgiveness, let go of bitterness. Maybe after the service tonight, then maybe there's someone in your life and maybe just your relationship is screwed up and it would start with you forgiving or apologizing. Pick up the phone, send a text message, however you want to go about it. Maybe there's something that God has been putting on your heart, an Easter drama. What a great opportunity to get involved. Teaching a class, working in the youth group, No one smiled. No one wants to do that. God is calling you to do something. There's a miraculous miracle waiting. You just have to step out of the boat. You have to have enough faith to jump off the roof, to step out of the boat and follow Jesus Christ. 